So our reading is taken from the second book of Samuel, chapter 11. And this is found on page 314 in the Church Bible. The second book of Samuel, chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. David and Bathsheba. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers, messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, fiercest, then withdraw from him, so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle he instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king his account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? 
Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Amalek, the son of Job, Bethsheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Our reading continues in chapter 12. This is chapter 12, following on. Nathan rebukes David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he'd bought. He raised it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a little meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, 
the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown your contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, please open our minds to understand your scripture as you did for your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. This is David experiencing the living God. That's the title. Is that challenging or is it cozy? I wasn't sure really whether everything I'm gonna say was for me or whether it's for everybody, but I think it's always a bit like that. Our experience of God is not all good news. Without the bad news, in chapter 12, verse 7, you are the man, there can't really be that good news in verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. And in between is David's reaction which is in verse 12, I have sinned against the Lord. But his reaction afterwards, after he's heard the good news, is Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Creating me a pure heart, O God, Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. So I think that's what all this is about. Hillsborough came up in the news just recently. Which is worse, do you think, the sin or the cover-up? A lot of people died at Hillsborough. And our great concern now is whether there is a cover-up. If you're a little bit older than that, you might remember Richard Nixon and Watergate. 
I can't remember what he did wrong before Watergate, but I can certainly remember all the hoo-ha about the cover-up and the stripping away of Nixon the president and the disclosure of Nixon the man beneath. The cover-up was pretty bad. So this is really about a number of people. One, one of them is, is Nathan. Now, Nathan is God's prophet, and he's just received a word for David, which is set out in chapter 7, which is God's covenant promise to David that he will be a king, that God will establish his throne, that his family, his house, his dynasty, will not lack for a man to be king, and that God will establish that throne forever. He's going to be the ancestor of the Messiah, and in David's line, he's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, in your seed shall all nations be blessed. That's in Jesus. If you don't believe me, Galatians 3.16. That is a covenant. God is committed to that. And David prays to accept that. And in accepting it, he says that so that men may say that the Almighty is God over Israel, and so that your name will be great forever. So David has had this wonderful promise, this covenant. He's entered into it, and he's responded in this wonderful way, knowing that all this gift from God, all this anointment, uh, anointing is in order really to demonstrate God to everybody, the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And then we get this situation with Bathsheba. How on earth is God going to keep his promises, be faithful to his promises and his covenants, whilst at the same time remaining true to his holiness and his justice and his character and his word? secret is the answers in Romans 3 20 to 26 but I'm not going to read that today how will God manage to keep his promise that he will be our God and we will be his people if we do things like the things that David did does the church not do that sort of thing occasionally do, do, do we not are we not a bit like David really Because instead of being the witnesses that we're supposed to be in Acts 1, my witnesses, Jesus says, the, the evidence we give turns out to be evidence for the prosecution, like Pat Archer. Is that the right one, Pat Archer? Have you know these archers? She's trapped into saying something, and then it's used against what she wants. Because she's got it wrong. And made a mess of it. Anyway, what is the passage about? Is it about Bathsheba? Well, not really. Not today. Is it about Eliam, her father? Not really. Is it about Uriah? Uriah is honest. He's a man who's come from outside Israel. He's one of these Gentiles to whom Israel is supposed to be a light. He's arrived at David's time of need when he's in Ziklag and in trouble. He's one of the 30 mighty men of valor, the 30 men David's bodyguard, perhaps. Perhaps he's sworn some sort of oath of, of loyalty to David. He's certainly demonstrated it in his life. And he sticks to David's rules. No sex on campaign. That's in 
um, chapter 21 of Samuel 1. And he seems to be sticking to God's rules. And he's deceived by David, by the king. This is David, betrayed by a close friend. It's David almost in the role of Judas. Is it about retirement? I think it is a bit about retirement because the first verse says in the spring when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out and there he is on the roof sending his man to fight his battles for him. We, we have to fight our own battles, don't we? Is it about Nathan? Well, Nathan has given this wonderful, wonderful message to David in chapter 7, um, at the beginning of which David has said, I'm going to build a house, the temple. And Joab says, do whatever's in your, in your heart, God's with you. And then God speaks to Nathan in the night and says, you got it wrong, lad. You've got to go and tell him it's the opposite. So he goes to David. He's not too proud to go to David and say, sorry, um, actually, God, um, you're not, you're not, it isn't, he says, you're not going to build a house. Um, that's going to be for your descendants. But there is this promise for you, the dynasty. And now he has to go to David with a very, very difficult message. He's got to go to the king and tell him, what he's done. But he faithfully delivers that. That's what a prophet does. And his message is not comfy. So is it about David? Well, he's the anointed king. God says that he's been anointed as king of Israel, Judah. He's delivered him out of Saul's hand. He's delivered him out of his enemy's hands. He's given him his covenant um, he's given him the house of Israel and Judah. One house, Israel and Judah. Later on, two kingdoms fighting each other. This is not the only thing David does wrong. And sometimes when we do wrong things, it's very expensive and there are consequences. 70,000 men died as a result of a later sin of David's. And he said he was responsible for the death of the entire family of the high priest, 85 men, and the city of Nob, and uh, all the priests, and all the men, and the women, and the children in the town of Nob. So David, he has God's anointing, and he has his promises, but he's not, he's not a man who never makes a mistake. So how bad is this mistake? How bad is this sin with Bathsheba. Because sin separates and it spoils and it spreads. How bad is it? Adultery. He sees her. He looks at her. He sends a message asking who she is. He sends a messenger to come and fetch her. He sleeps with her. Um, the suggestion later on is that perhaps he's taken her, um, perhaps without her entire cooperation in, in chapter 10. And it's hidden, and then she, he gets a message, oh, I'm pregnant. So, what does he do when he realizes that what he's done is about to come out? It's going to be discovered, disclosed, cover-up. What's he going to do? Does he go straight to Psalm 51? Repent, confess, be cleansed, continue in the covenant. Carry on in the role of writing psalms which are a witness to the world for hundreds of years to the glory of God. No, he covers it up. And that gets worse too. He gets hold of Uriah, brings him back from 
the battle, gives him a meal, sends him home to his wife, hoping that uh, she'll be pleased to see him and that, that they'll have a, a reason to suggest that the child is his. But he's too law-abiding, he won't do that. No sex, on, no sex on campaign, I'm staying here, I'm not going back to my wife. So he tries again the next night, he gets a ride drunk, hoping that he'll go home and won't be able to resist Bathsheba. I couldn't, he thinks to himself, perhaps. But he's misjudged Mariah, uh, Uriah, and then it's conspiracy to murder. It implicates other people. It implicates Jael, the commander-in-chief. He kills Uriah, and other soldiers die too. It's a heavy price. But is, is that... Um, Is that the worst of it? When, when Nathan arrives and tells him the story, David says this man deserves to die because he took what, what wasn't his and he had no pity and he's got to pay compensation. Who is that sin against? In David's mind at that time, the, the, the man in the story has sinned against the other man in the story. So David sinned against Eliam because he's treated his daughter as a, a commodity. He sinned against Uriah in the same way with his wife, and then in killing him. He's in a position of trust. He's exploited his power. He's done all these things that we think are very terrible now. And David has seven wives already. Numerous concubines, 18 sons, numerous daughters, uh, quite apart from children by concubines. So he's got quite a, quite a substantial family. Uriah just has the one. So how bad is that against man? Pretty rotten. But Nathan doesn't really talk about that. Nathan talks about how bad is this towards God. He says in verse 9 that you've despised the word of God and you've done what was evil. In verse 10 it says you've despised God. And then in verse 14, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. That's shattering Deuteronomy 6 that we thought about earlier. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is making the enemies of God show utter contempt. This is putting a water pistol in the hands of Dawkins, and Hutchins, and Isis. This is terrible. Does the church ever do that? Do we ever do that? Well, certainly the church has in the past. Perhaps it's easier to look at the past and say, well, perhaps in retrospect we shouldn't have burned quite so many of our fellow Christians, maybe. But this is the opposite of giving light to the Gentiles. It's the opposite of what our witness is supposed to be. It's Pat Archer, switched and used by the wrong side. And Nathan talks about this. He said, I'm going to bring a calamity on you. Calamity is the word that Jewish people now use for the Holocaust. So calamity, in a Jewish sense, is, is quite a big word. And this is going to be in two phases. And God, this is prophecy. So we know that if the first bit comes to pass, then the prophet is reliable. That's the test in Deuteronomy 18, test of a prophet that the second bit will come to pass. 
Now, we can look back now and see that the second bit has also come to pass. The first and the second have happened. So Nathan is reliable. So when Nathan delivers the promise, the Lord has taken away your sin, we know that we can rely on that too. We know that that is also utterly reliable. So the first one is fairly horrid in um, verse 12. He says that he's going to give David's wives into the hands of somebody who's close to him, and he will lie with his wives in, in broad daylight. So that's going to be sex in a public place for his wives. Does that happen? Yes, it does. Um, Absalom, his favorite son, rebels against him, and he does exactly that in the course of his rebellion against David the king. Uh, and what about the, the slightly longer term bit? Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. David's family. Within the next few chapters, Amnon will rape Tamar. Absalom will kill Amnon. Absalom will rebel. In the course of the rebellion, uh, two cousins, Joab and Amasa, will be in command of each army, and one of them will kill the other. And for the next few hundred years, the sword never departs from David's dynasty. The house of Israel is cut off completely by the sword with Sennacherib. And even the good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah, for example, they fight. Josiah dies in a battle, and Hezekiah is besieged in Jerusalem and sees the wonderful deliverance from um, Sennacherib. The sword never departs from David's house in the rest of the Old Testament. And we can see that. So Nathan's got it right, hasn't he? The first two bits of his prophecy are right, and so we can be sure that I have sinned against the Lord will result in the Lord has taken away your sin. So that's the good news. How does God actually manage to put that to David in the past tense? What does it mean that he says God has taken away your sin? I, th I think that that means he hasn't overlooked it. He hasn't covered it up. He hasn't said, oh, well, I'll pretend it hasn't happened. You're a good chap, really. He's taken it away. From eternity, God has planned to take away our sin. What does John the Baptist say of Jesus when he sees him openly acknowledging him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. And that's, of course, that's at the cross. The Lord himself takes away our sin. And it's so certain that, to God that that's going to happen because he's planned it from eternity and he knows the outcome of everything that he's able to say through Nathan to David, has, the Lord has taken away your sin. Not he might, but he has. But there is that little tiny bit in between in verse 12 where David says, I have sinned against the Lord. So that seems to be the sequence of events but there are consequences sometimes of our sin, aren't there? The child will die. This is an innocent child. 
happens to be the son of the king. There's an obvious parallel of foreshadowing a type of Jesus, but in human terms, that's a consequence. But praise God that eternity is covered. The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. In the words, the dying words, I think, of Henry Newton, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Amen.